0: Hello and welcome to the third of three special editions of Nevermind The Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack, and my co-host Stephen Tall. Stephen is situated as close to a microphone as he can be without actually eating it, so hopefully that is also the audible Stephen Tall.
1: And it's great to be back um, after Mark's breakout solo success... Um, having uh, ditched me for the, the glamour of the two leader interviews. It's, it's nice to be reunited, I feel like Lennon and McCartney of the <laughs> Lib Dem podcast world are back together I'm, again. I'm
0: just glad I've not been classified as the Ringo Star <laughs> in this convoluted <laughs> musical analogy. Um, so as you touched on, Stephen, the last two episodes were interviews with Joe Swinson and Ed Davey, two candidates to be next leader of the Liberal Democrats. Those interviews are up and available in the feed for anyone who hasn't listened to them yet to listen
1: to. Uh, but you have listened to them as well. I have, yes. Um, I felt I ought to keep track somehow of uh, uh, what was happening in the bar charts whilst I wasn't on it. Uh, actually, on a serious note, I wanted to um, uh, pay tribute. That sounds a bit ominous, like you're you're dead or something. But <laughs> I wanted to um, uh, say I thought they were really good interviews uh, because beginners' I'm, been, luck, I think. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you why I think they were good because I've been listening to a few um, uh, interviews with the. Uh, leadership candidates and uh, a couple of podcasts that have been discussing them. And generally speaking, I get frustrated when uh, Lib Dem leadership candidates are interviewed because the questions just seem not really to touch on the issues that actually matter to, to Lib Dem voters uh, and Lib Dem members and don't really seem to kind of understand the Lib Dems generally. Um, this is a, you know, a, a familiar uh, complaint against the media coverage, I suppose, of, of the Liberal Democrats, that um, it just doesn't seem to uh, understand how the party works or what makes party yeah. members tick. So it was really refreshing to have an interview which uh, did touch on policy uh, and explored that um, in, in uh, good depth, but also took in other issues around you know, their character, yeah. uh, around their view of the world and uh, how they saw their role as leader and reforms they might want to make as party leader in a way that uh, understood kind of what makes the party tick. So it was great to have that. Um,
0: I work. like having you back on the podcast, Stephen. I think you can you can return. This is my desperate episode. pitch. You know, <laughs> <laughs> please, please don't, don't are, drop me don't, again. <laughs> don't exclude
1: me from all this fun stuff. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was uh, I thought it was really good um, for kind of getting to grips mm. and giving people a good insight into what makes both uh, Ed Davian and Joe Swinson mm. tick. And I I
0: certainly felt I understood each of their pitches to be better after the two interviews, so hopefully (laughs) listeners will have felt that as well. One thing that I think particularly struck me, and I know um, understandably quite often people want to plunge into the detail, but I think on several topics really the interesting thing is not so much the detail of what Ed and Joe have said, but more the overall direction and the tone Mm -hmm. and I think you see this particularly on attitudes towards uh, other parties, working with other parties or trying to persuade people to join the Lib Dems, is if you delve in too tightly to the exact wording of what Ed and Joe have said on different occasions, it's possible to almost fail to see the wood for the trees, being able to pick and mix statements they've made which are very similar. But when you take a bit of a step back, there is a clear difference, and in a way it's a really important strategic choice, so I think it's good that there's a difference between the two of them on this. So just
1: to be explicit about that, in terms of how you're um, thinking mm. uh, that their approach is, I mean, my take was Ed Davey was very much more of a let's focus uh, on building the Liberal Democrats' strength yep. first and foremost. Let's look after our, ourselves and make sure that we are a, um, a fighting force that's returned to um, you know, dozens of MPs rather than a dozen mm. MPs. Let's focus on that first. And in doing so, by becoming stronger, we will... Uh, through some kind of magnetic forces of attraction, yeah. make sure that other uh, parties and other liberal, uh, small l-inclined voters, uh, and indeed potentially MPs, are drawn to the yeah. Liberal Democrats. Whereas Joe's uh, isn't that different, but it's much more of a let's reach out to people, and if that involves the Liberal Democrats potentially um, pooling some of the sovereignty, uh, sovereignty I suppose, and um, having some form of uh, alliance with other... Parties and with other mm. groups, then let's go for that approach as well. That's, that was yeah, my take from it. Absolutely, was and that, that, that was my
0: take as well. And I think your pooling of sovereignty, actually, phrase is quite a good one in, in terms of sort of reflecting that sense of that what I think Jo wants is not to um, sort of dilute, as it were, what the Liberal Democrats stand for, but I think her view seems to be much more the way to achieve more of what we want is by working closely with others Whilst Ed's approach seems to be much more the way we achieve what we want is by getting other people to join us, um, yeah. and there is, and, and so the question that I actually slightly regret now not having asked them because I think I would have got different answers is: Do you think someone who is a member of the Women's Equality Party should also mm-hmm. be a member of the Liberal Democrats? And yeah. I think we would have mm-hmm. got from Ed a definite no. They stand against us in other elections, etc. And I think from Joe we would have got either a yes or perhaps maybe a no, but a much more softly and less, as it were, robustly yeah. <laughs> uh, communicated no than, than what we would have got But from it Ed. could, of
1: course, be a registered supporter, I suppose. There will be nothing stopping... Well, them. indeed, that
0: was one of the elements of debate there was around the party registered supporter scheme at, at, at conference was that, in the end, that element was rejected. So the idea that you could be a member of another party and sort of take part in sort of liberal-democrat decision-making... Um, but that was you know, one of the options that some people are in favour of. And indeed, it, it's notable that both you know, the two then leadership, uh, female you know, potential leadership candidates of Joe Swinson and Leila Moran, both spoke up in that debate in favour of those reforms. Ed Davey didn't take part in that debate. And indeed, uh, that wasn't simply just that he wasn't available or wasn't called. But if you look at what he had been saying or more to the point not saying in the run up to that debate, he was not nailing his colours to the master of those party reforms in a way that he could have. So I think there has consistently yeah. been a, some difference between Joe and Ed about how much they, they, they view the task in front of the party as rebuilding ourselves versus your sort of pooling sovereignty to work really closely with others.
1: But it was interesting uh, on uh, where there was definitely... Uh, not that approach from Jo herself was uh, when it came to Scotland, mm. and uh, it was for very understandable reasons, and I don't disagree with her at all. But it was interesting to hear um, when she was talking about no. the SNP. There was a very definite no. Mm. <laughs> That's yeah. where it stops. Uh, you know, nationalist parties are not where we as Liberal Democrats are at, and Ed would say the same thing, and I'm sure he yeah. would. But it was yeah. interesting that that on that yeah. level, um, when it's uh, when I guess there are. I suppose, from her point of view, understandably, fundamental principles attached, yeah. uh, attach, then um, there's not going to be a compromise there. Yeah, and
0: I, and I think it's, there's a risk of, particularly Liberal Democrat members from England, I think, are failing to see how the question of Scottish independence and yeah. the question of Britain's membership of the European Union are as fundamental as each other, and therefore yeah. there's nothing inconsistent, really, in saying that... That both of them are the sort of the key dividing lines between who are the people on one side of divide that we might want to work with in whatever way, and who are the people on the other side of that divide where actually, sorry, we just mm. disagree them yeah. on a really principled, you know, on, on a really principled basis. Um, and it's interesting in that respect that you know I have seen Lib Dem members comment about how they won't, almost all English members, in fact, all English members probably saying that they won't vote for Joe because of her willingness to criticise the SNP. Um, I, I hope they aren't therefore deciding to vote for Ed on that basis because <laughs> actually Ed is, you know, as you say, as robust in terms yeah. of views of the SNP as Joe.
1: There was uh, one of the points that struck me from Ed uh, in the interview, uh, which I hadn't really thought of before, uh, was around uh, his um, point about the Remain, uh, remain Alliance. Because mm. uh, the question you posed mm. was, uh, you know, general election quite likely to occur um, in the next few months? Um, And what's the prospect of there being some form of Remain alliance? And uh, I guess we've all, having just been through the European elections, where that was a very live question for understandable reasons, because of the Mm. um, form of um, proportional representation used, meaning that uh, it could potentially have meant that the Lib Dems lost out on lots of seats. didn't happen, but it looked like that might happen at one stage. but of course his point was that, actually under first-past-the-post, does a Remain Alliance really make that much difference in that many seats? Would it um, uh, really swing the votes, when you're, if you're looking at the realistic deals of uh, Lib Dems and Greens and Plaid perhaps, uh, how many seats would it make the difference between a Remain Alliance candidate winning and a, in most cases, Liberal Democrat? Well, uh, yeah, I, I, winning. I think, his point was that yeah, actually what that there weren't most, very many seats there like many that, seats, and yeah. and if and where there are seats, uh, then actually tactical voting is going to be a, mm. a simpler, more effective um, yeah. uh, mechanism than trying to kind of carve up this grand deal at national level. Yeah.
0: I think the risk with Ed's argument is is a particular scenario, which actually also poses some risks for Joe's approach as well. But so let's let's imagine this scenario where there is. A vote of some sort in the House of Commons to sort of stop a no deal uh, Brexit happening, in which there are some significant rebels, say, on the Conservative Party side. And maybe there's some sort of vote on a deal where also there are some very, you know, Labour MPs who very clearly stick their neck out to vote for a clearly remain position. And then because of impasse in Parliament, we end up in a general election. So we end up in a general election where there are both Labour MPs who have stuck their neck out for remain and Tory MPs have stuck their neck out for Remain. Mm-hmm. In that situation, yeah. would we want to stand against them yeah. and risk, therefore... Do we want a, to defeat Dominic Grieve? Exactly. That we know. And there's a whole host of other names that, in yeah. a sense, we hope that that will become quite a long list, because yeah. we need that list to become quite long to win some key votes <laughs> in Parliament. And I think Ed, so Ed's argument is sort of makes sense in normal circumstances. I think the risk with Ed's argument is it doesn't really work in that sort of election, because then you're talking about dozens and dozens Mm. of seats. I think likewise, um, the risk with Joe's approach is because Joe's approach is about being, in that sense, maybe more welcoming to work with people who uh, we agree with on some key issues, is nonetheless, there is an implication in there that it is people who are, we've got a fair amount of overlap with. So it's, you know, Joe's approach is much easier to see how it works when you're talking about Women's Equality Party or Green Party. If you're talking about, for example, some quite illiberal but Remain Labour MPs, yeah, you know, I, I think both of their, their their models face, you know, face potentially a real a real sort of fracturing when it when it comes up against reality.
1: Yeah, and and to be fair, Ed was uh, saying that you know one of the first blocks would be uh, and take Bridge mm. as an example. Assuming Boris Johnson becomes prime minister, there would certainly be a temptation to try and uh, win his seat, mm-hmm. uh, but. Course, it's Labour who are in second place Mm. there, um, 5,000 votes behind. Well, Labour in second place at the last election.
0: I mean, there's an interesting, you know, if you look at what has happened in politics since then, um, there's a question. But
1: but they're not going to stand down in favour of uh, a Remain Alliance candidate, I can't imagine, Mm. Um, both in terms of them actually, Mm. uh, Jeremy Corbyn taking the decision that Labour shouldn't contest it, uh, and also just in terms of their uh, current position, Mm. okay, a dated current position now. uh, in in Uxbridge constituency, that it wouldn't seem to them uh, to make sense. Mm.
0: Indeed, and that, and um, I, I guess the thing that this leads on to is the question of how important really is you know is Brexit because uh, clearly for Liberal Democrats Brexit is a massively important issue. But what are the points at which you say actually that even so it's massively important? doing that thing or working with that person is just beyond the pale. Um, And it's interesting in a slightly different context how um, quite a few Liberal Democrats have reacted quite negatively to the news in the last couple of days of the new initiative from the Make Votes Count Alliance who have set up a cross-party initiative to push for proportional representation for the House of Commons. So a cause that is very dear to Liberal Democrats' hearts. And I think Make Votes Count for very sensible reasons I think from the point of view of achieving success, have got the Brexit party signed up as one of their supporters. Mm-hmm. But I think it's notable just how many Liberal Democrats have said, oh, yeah. that's just... Even though voting reform is perhaps <laughs> above all else the classic sort of issue where you can say, look, you really need to have different parts of the political spectrum agree yeah. on this because it's, yeah, the very nature about how our democracy is run should be something that's not just driven by, from one particular party corner of the political spectrum so even though that's perhaps the issue on which you would say we should be most willing to work with people who disagree with us on some really big issues Uh, clearly for a good chunk of liberal democrats actually the brexit party is beyond the pale so i do wonder when it comes to the crunch with a number of say Tory or labor mps where there might be in theory a case for standing down uh how how that will play out and and i fear that both ed and joe for perhaps understandable reasons of saying, well, in the end, it's down to members in the constituency, which is sort of the procedurally correct answer, <laughs> as it were, and the the, the sort of the grassroots dem- democracy-type answer is the risk is you end up with different Liberal Democrat local parties in different places deciding different things, and to the outside world, yeah. the party's position looking a complete mess, and that actually then damages the party everywhere. Yeah. I think, and this is always the, the stress point in terms of grassroots democracy is... is Having different places decide different things is great and normally I'm a very stern critic of those who use phrases like postcode lottery because it's not a postcode lottery, it's postcode local democracy. I think one has to acknowledge it could quite easily get quite confusing and even damaging for the party if there really were to be a leader who is actually completely hands off and says... Everyone, decide your own thing. And we then end up deciding lots of different things because what will the rep- public overall make of our position there? Indeed.
1: And it's, it's interesting on the uh, proportional representation point because uh, at the hustings uh, I was at, uh, each of the candidates was asked, what's the one legacy mm. you would mm. want to leave? Uh, you know, if, you, if there was one thing that you could have achieved uh, in politics, what would it be? And Joe Swinson's was uh, proportional mm. representation um, which, uh, you know, was tickling the audience's tummy uh, and did get uh, a good reaction. I'm not sure it would be my absolute number one priority for the Oh Really, because uh, I, I think I
0: I, guess I would, I think I probably would pick that if I'd been asked that question, i have oh, been running dear. for leader, on the basis that partly the rules of the game of politics are so important, mm. but also in terms of legacy, you know, as we've seen with a lot of other things, say Liberal Democrats achieved in 2010 to 15, there's a whole slew of policies that are very easy to undo. I think in sure. terms of long-term yeah. legacy, something like PR is much better. So, what, what, what would let, you me have let me be well, clear. Let me be clear.
1: Just uh, before I get the hate mail, uh, let me be clear. I do support proportional representation. I think do you support STV? Uh, I, I think so. Yes. Uh, what in, counting in system this, do, you pr- uh, do you do? Do you prefer um, um, the best one, um, the fairest one? Is that the right answer? Uh, um, I don't. Ireland know. or ERS? Uh, oh, you see, this is where I, I start getting the nightmares of being a Lib Dem member. Um, in the, I do obviously want proportional representation, um, but I don't care that much about it, um, that I've actually investigated every possible system. And I think, uh, to be slightly serious for a second, um, the reason I wouldn't name it as my number one is because the occasional part of liberal democracy uh, and the Liberal Democrats that um, uh, irritates me is the, uh, I think sometimes, undue focus on process mm-hmm. over outcomes. And but I this see, is a process I, that determines and outcomes, I see, and I see proportional representation as a very processy um, kind of. Uh, does it determine outcomes? I mean obviously it does, because anything that changes the course of politics um, affects future outcomes. In terms of is he actually focusing on something that will improve people's lives? I mean, clearly you will say yes, because it will alter Correct. how politics <laughs> is done, and therefore it will in turn. Uh, deliver better outcomes. I just, if I was, if I was thinking of my number one um, political legacy, it would be outcome-focused rather than mm. process-orientated. So that's, that's where I come from. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I am an outlier in the sense of, uh, whilst I obviously voted for uh, the AV uh, in the referendum, there was a, a small part of me, I stressed small part of me, that was kind of, well, at least now the Liberal Democrats will have to bang on about something else and focus on things that the public care about as opposed to things that we care about, because this referendum puts to bed electoral reform for a few years at least, and so we are actually going to have to focus on things that the public care about. So there was a small part yeah. of me that was kind of, OK, at least we don't have to uh, feel like uh, that's our number one thing. But it's back again a few years later. Yeah, so, so,
0: so good yeah. news for democracy, good news for the Royal Democrats, bad yeah. news for Stephen.
1: The um, uh, quick intermission, because um, I've mentioned the hustings, mm. and this is something that we both um, on Twitter talked about, was... A bit of a moan about hustings and the format and the approach.
0: How long have you got, Stephen? So, How well, listeners, <laughs> put your feet up. So, this is where we do agree. We do agree with each other on this one.
1: Oh, so, so, let's put it in can context, my Can, can I, you, I caveat you your are caveat? A, you are a hustings groupie, yeah. and therefore you have seen lots of hustings yeah. travelling yeah. around the country. I, I, I've I, only I, seen one.
0: I first want to caveat my. Um, hatred almost of our <laughs> Hustings format with I have to say that people I have seen chair the Hustings have done a really good job and actually my criticisms of the Hustings in a sense you know, even when they are well chaired, so by people like Sal Brinton for example, even when they are well chaired there is a fundamental problem with the format, and I think you know, sometimes if something doesn't quite work well for a format for an event or whatever, you might think, oh, it's the chair or the speaker or whatever, but actually, no, it is the format. And the basic pro- problem with the format is that it's dull, yeah. but it's yeah. dull in a way that doesn't put people through their paces. So uh, for any listeners who have had the wise pleasure of not sitting <laughs> through multiple liberal Democrat hustings... Uh, quick refresher, the basic format is opening speech from each candidate, then a series of questions from the audience where each question must be directed to all the candidates, mm-hmm. both the candidates in this case, so you're not allowed to have a question that's directed just at one candidate. So a series of questions directed at both candidates, uh, normally grouped on themes, and then closing speeches. So what you're missing are both really any properly inquisitive follow-up questions sometimes someone from the floor gets a, a supplementary but you don't have that second and third and fourth mm-hmm. question on a topic which really digs into something you also don't get any head-to-head debate yeah. um, and what because things are grouped by theme it really encourages and often several questions taken in one go and then people are asked to respond to all them it encourages sort of bland and more general questions and I think a a good example, it's always particularly in the middle of an election campaign where people can get quite sort of heated on each side and quite fervent for sort of supporting their own preferred candidate, it's, it's maybe easier to look back at previous elections. I think if you look at back, say, to the Tim Farron Norman Lamb contest, it's clear, partly with the advantage of hindsight, but not just with the advantage of hindsight, that Tim wasn't really put through his paces on faith questions nor was Norman on his attitudes towards Europe. Norman is mm-hmm. one of the most Eurosceptic Liberal Democrats. Um, I mean, being a Eurosceptic Liberal Democrat is still pretty <laughs> pro-European in the overall scale of things. But if you think what line would the party have taken under a Norman leadership yeah. after the European referendum result, yeah. for example, compared to the very strongly pro-European line that that Tim took, actually, there you know, we could have the politics at least for the Liberal Democrats, could have gone in a very, very different yeah, direction. So neither of them really got put through their paces. Yeah. And the, in large part, it's because the format of our hostings doesn't, doesn't do that. And I think we've seen that again uh, this time.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I, I would uh, agree with that. I mean, it, it is odd, actually, that um, they're both on together. Because, as you say, the, the format it, itself is just a kind of mirror image. It's, you know, it, it's, uh, in, in the one I saw anyway, there was a question on immigration yeah. Um, Each gave uh, their pro-immigration responses, and fine, I'm pro-immigration too. Um, And then there were three supplementary questions all around the same Mm. kind of theme, and they said the same thing again in slightly different words. Um, And nothing that they said was wrong or or whatever, but A, you're right, it just gets boring after a while, it's just quite repetitive, but B, it's just weird um, because... uh, there is no interaction between the two candidates. Exactly, the, they so You might as well, just, there, have on, might as well yeah. just have them on separately, because um, actually one of the points I, I noticed you made uh, in a blog was that uh, the candidates are starting to become more similar, mm. they are trying to out-similar each other, yeah, and, and I do wonder whether it's partly, because actually, if you are on mm. however many hustings there have been around the country, hearing each other speak all the time, hearing mm. each other, uh, you know, if it's boring for us, it must be incredibly <laughs> boring for them. Um, Because they have to say the same things each night, as well as listen Uh, to the other person say the same things each night. And so perhaps it's no wonder that in the end they start morphing into this kind of uh, amalgus, bland blob of here's my generic Liberal Democrat response on immigration.
0: Yeah, I I wouldn't maybe quite go as far as you, (laughs) but I think it was notable at the Hustings that we were both at in Gatwick Airport a somewhat (laughs) counterintuitive but actually very sensible Hustings venue. Kudos to her for picking that because, of course, although it sounds a little bit odd having Hustings at an airport, uh, of course, they're really good public transport links. So actually a very good choice of venue. Um, I I nearly wrecked the whole evening by taking the wrong turn out of the tube station, uh, sorry, out the train station and nearly getting on a flight to Malta rather than going to Hastings Hustings Room. And one of the leadership candidates was uh, foolishly following me, thinking I was knowing where I was going. So I <laughs> nearly completely wrecked that evening. But and that would be tiny little Malta. Exactly, Malta, which, in. yes, exactly. Uh, Die hard fans of Liberal Democrat leadership <laughs> elections will be glad to know Malta is featuring once again. However, one of the final questions, I think the penultimate question, if I remember rightly, was and kudos to whoever asked this question and again to the chair for 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 picking this question you know we you know it was a question along the lines of we do have to choose between the two of you Mm -hmm. so how are you different from each other and both joe and ed decided to spend a good chunk of the first part of each of their answers saying how similar they were to the other not not saying this is how i am different in a way that means you should vote for me and only me because i'm different Um, which is one of the basic elements of election campaigning normally. So it is curious how reluctant they've been to... I should just okay. say, though, on on the subject of those questions, um, that as well as sort of, I think, you know, my dis- disdain of the Hustings format, as it were, is not in any way a reflection on, on, on the chairs. Also, I think this time, actually, the questions have been a lot better. Mm-hmm. And that may partly be what the chairs are choosing. I think it also, though, does reflect... Um, that we, you know, we have a lot less I think these days than we used to of somebody coming up with a particular policy hobby horse yeah. uh, slightly sort of esoteric policy hobby and they ask that question and both basically all the candidates sort of say oh yes that's important and don't really make any commitment because they don't want to sound like they're disagreeing with a voter <laughs> uh, but you know in a way that just makes for a slightly yeah. pointless exchange very often in terms of really helping illustrate what is a leader candidate going to do if I'm elected not... but this time I think there have been a lot more questions from people that have been along the lines of look, come on, please impale yourself on a political yeah. stake here by giving me a meaningful answer. And it's interesting,
1: actually, some of the... At uh, uh, Gatwick Hustings, mm. some of the questions got rounds of applause mm. um, because people actually thought, actually, that, that is yeah. an intelligent, uh, sharp question mm. uh, to ask. I think uh, perhaps the, uh, the way to improve it, at least... Well, partly by having different formats, having, as I think you've suggested previously, having uh, you know some professional interviewers... Dare
0: I say copy the Conservative Party Hustings yeah. at the moment? Yeah. I, I caught... A good chunk of one of them and it was now again obviously because I am less familiar with the nuances of Conservative Party stuff in a way some of the details that came out of that were fresh for me in a way they may not have been for the audience so I appreciate there may be a little bit of the grass is greener on the other side about this but it did seem to me that format of having somebody on stage who is not who is there to be neutral but to question Mm -hmm. people a bit like I attempted to do in our two podcast interviews That actually that
1: worked worked pretty well. Yeah. But equally, uh and this isn't to criticise your interviewing technique, um, but I, I guess if you've got someone like Ian Dale who uh, A professional done, interviewer uh, someone with someone who does years it every of experience, exactly and and, yeah. uh, and also uh you know, has permission in a sense to interrupt. Mm. Um, because that's their professional job. In a way, you're trying to actually draw information out. Mm. They're also, uh, Ian Dale's job, um, LBC um, radio presenter, is to put them on the spot Mm. as well. And he did obviously do that um, famously with asking Boris Johnson about um, why the police called round to his house uh, one Mm. day. And that's not the sort of question that I think would have been put at a Hustings, and if it had, it probably would have been booed by a Lib Dem audience uh, as well. But it's the kind of question that needs to be asked Mm. during a hustings, precisely as you say, to make sure that people see, okay, when a Lib Dem candidate Mm. is under the cosh, as they will be, Mm. we hope at some point, because that means Mm. that the Liberal Democrats actually matter enough Mm. for uh, them to be uh, put seriously uh, on the spot by an interviewer, how do they cope under that kind of interview Mm. pressure? And it would be good training for them Mm. because chances are uh, either of them is going to face a a general election and therefore likely a televised national debate. And uh, I'd much rather they made some mistakes in front of a friendly audience now uh, than had to make them in front of the full glare glare of publicity uh, when we're uh, really needing every single vote.
0: And, And one thing that struck me was in the couple of questions I asked Ed Davey about his record on the environment as Minister, so on issues of fracking and nuclear power. I was... And I guess different listeners will have... Some will have thought his answers were really good. Some will have thought probably his answers weren't so good. For those who haven't yet listened to that interview... Um, in both cases, I asked him about essentially why he is you know, he is perceived as having taken a pro nuclear power and a pro mm-hmm. fracking line in the past and no longer you know, no longer does um, and actually, I think he gave me a really quite sort of long and detailed and interesting answer mm-hmm. to both. I think people who are fans of his will have probably quite liked those answers for the level of technical depth and so on that for example most showed. I guess people who are less keen on the idea of him as leader may be worried that, in answer to a fairly simple question, he had quite a long answer, and whether that is the sort of thing that would really stand up under the political strain if he wins. But, I, but what did strike me was it didn't feel to me like he had been really repeatedly pressed on those points, yeah. and therefore hopefully in a way that made the interview more interesting because it was a slightly fresher answer rather than mm. sort of prepackaged set of you know of, of honed sound bites. But also, you sort of think, actually, you know, if you win, you are going to get repeatedly pressed yeah. on this. Is it? Are we as a party really doing ourselves a favour if we don't put repeatedly put you through the ringer yeah. on a question like that? And of course, there are similar, you know, similar questions that can be can be directed at Joe. But I thought Ed's Ed's answers were a particularly good example of that
1: point. It was. It was interesting actually, from um, from both of them on the coalition. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, you can't, I suppose, have a a leadership election perhaps ever mm. without. Uh, relitigating, was it right to go into the coalition? And uh, what struck me—the twenty-one thirty-six <laughs> leadership maybe, election, maybe. definitely. Um, well, I, I, and Ed did say at one point, and he does every single leader for the next hundred years have to apologise for tuition fees, um, which is uh, you know not a bad line actually, is in terms of trying to draw the line under that. But the point I was going to make on uh, well, uh, coalition—if if
0: I can just interject, oh. you see, <laughs> I think you see, I think if he had been put under more pressure and had made that joke in other contexts, yep. and then had the comeback. Yeah about, well, people are still going to be paying off their debt in 100 years, yeah. which is not strictly speaking true. But, you know, it, I thought that was quite a nice example of how I thought, we, have we really been putting both candidates under enough pressure to make them yeah. really hone their answers in a way that isn't going to result in whoever wins giving an unfortunate answer at some point and yeah. therefore damaging yeah, yeah. all of us? And, and of
1: course, but, he would be able to make the point that tuition fees are scrapped uh, after 30 years automatically, whether paid back in full or not. But... Um, the point so I was going to uh, make was that both of them actually mm. defended mm. Uh, the party going into coalition. Not surprisingly, I guess. Both of them served as uh, minister in Joe's case, cabinet minister in Ed's case. So perhaps not that surprising. And yet, um, as someone who was, you know, I, I was pro coalition, mm. um, but equally, you look back and you go, well, just a minute. Um, we're saying that Brexit's the biggest disaster mm. ever. I think it's quite plausible that you could draw an alternative parallel Mm. universe in which the Lib Dems not going into coalition meant that Brexit didn't actually happen. Now, of course it could have done, I'm not saying that it was impossible Mm. that it could have happened, but I think it's quite likely that if no coalition had existed, Brexit would not have taken place uh, in 2016. Um, Now, no one can prove Mm. that one way or the other, it's just me making an uncontestable statement. But I do find it interesting that you know we, there's this kind of parallel universe in which, yes, of course, it was right to go into coalition because mm. we got um, you know lower income tax thresholds and so on, um, and we made all these differences mm. in various ways. I don't deny any of that, but if you're also saying Brexit's the biggest issue, it's the most disastrous foreign policy uh, debacle, uh, probably domestic policy debacle in any of our lifetimes, and yet the one thing we could have done back in 2010 uh, is to cut it off at the supply chain, then I think there's a... I find that an interesting conundrum. Mm, yeah, I'm not... I'm, I'm deeply so unconvinced. So go on, give me, give me the alternative history in which the Lib Dems ruling out coalition yep. and saying, no, we're not going to do right. it um, because we don't trust yep. David Cameron and yep. we don't think his approach to austerity is right. Um, uh, give me the alternative circumstances in which actually there would have been a Brexit referendum that resulted in a no vote. So you have then, say, a
0: conservative minority government... Mm-hmm. Uh, which doesn't last very long, most likely a general election then later in 2010, which returns a Conservative majority and a Conservative party that is massively split over Europe. Because mm-hmm. what drove David Cameron to make the promise was that, that dissension within the Tory party then and fuelled by UKIP. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I, I, I don't think the Liberal Democrats... You know, the Liberal Democrats being in coalition meant that that didn't play out as a referendum earlier than 2015, but I do if you look at those the driving factors of the disputes within the Tory Party, and the popularity of UKIP, I don't think you can say the Liberal Democrats being in coalition caused either, and indeed delayed certainly. Like I say, I don't happening.
1: think it's. Uh, I, I don't necessarily contest that it's possible to make that argument. Um, I think if David Cameron had, as I suspect mm-hmm. we both think, would have happened, won a majority in the autumn twenty ten election. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would have wanted to take the risk. I think a big reason why he put forward a referendum was because he never thought he would actually have to uh, carry it out uh, and that uh, everyone assumed there would be a hung parliament uh, and that uh, the Conservatives wouldn't actually get back yeah. in with the majority and therefore it was a, a fairly empty manifesto pledge that no-one would have to follow through on. That's what I think would have yeah. happened. So uh, anyway, I, it's, it, I guess the hypotheticals can be argued in any direction. I just think it's, it's interesting putting, putting that we that, don't necessarily consider the, uh, hi, uh, the counterfactual of if the Lib Dems hadn't gone into coalition, would the party and would the country actually be in a, in a better shape? And I think the answer to both questions in reality is yes. Oh, are you sure you're a Liberal Democrat, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> not, exactly. not in favour of PR? Not <laughs> I know, I know. I'm asking myself yes. in all sorts of ways, aren't I? Um, we should, before it uh, gets too late, um, mm. talk about your poll. Because yes, you have survey, surveyed, survey, sorry, not survey, poll, I think. survey yeah. because we don't necessarily have a balanced yeah. sample of uh, randomly yeah. chosen members, um, but you do have access to lots of uh, people's views. Um, that sounds a bit creepy, doesn't it? But you, have, uh, <laughs> you do ask people uh, ask who people are signed up views, to yeah. uh, uh, your newsletter for their views. and uh, Do you want to give us the, the skinny on yeah. what you found so out from that survey? As,
0: as you rightly say, this is... A survey in the sense that it's not a random sample so lots of health caveats apply to that uh, and the overall picture that f- survey found was 40% of Liberal Democrat members saying they'd vote for Joe Swinson, 40% saying that undecided, 20% for Ed Davey and we're in a sort of forced head-to-head choice that boiled down to 60% Joe Swinson, 40% Ed Davey. Um, I should say actually all of the numbers by chance did happen to be a you know a a, a factor of of 10 it's not that I've sort of been rounding rounding off hugely in saying those numbers uh Harry Samuels who also did a Twitter survey uh at the time of the Farron Lamb election which was fractionally less accurate uh, as it turned out than my uh Lib Newswire survey was at the time but broadly speaking he's what he did was as accurate as mine last time round. He has uh, just published his own figures, having repeated his methodology from last time, um, and he found Joe ahead of Ed, but by a uh, four or five points smaller,
1: mm-hmm.
0: smaller margin. So both of us have found Joe ahead of Ed, me by a you know overall a, a significantly larger margin than him. Uh, one of the reasons I think the for all the caveats one has to apply to, for example, my figures, I think they look pretty solid overall, is that there is some variation within the different subgroups. If you look at men versus women, people from England versus people from Scotland, people who have been to Hastings, people who have not been to Hastings and so on, the variation is not massive. Mm -hmm. So that suggests that even if the figures are skewed that they're not so skewed as to be completely wrong. That said, I do have readied, very convincing arguments if Jo wins by much more, (laughs) or indeed if she wins by a lot less, or Ed wins. Um, because the pattern seems to be, overall, that Ed Davy does better amongst women than amongst men. Mm-hmm. And I was a little bit surprised when I saw that in my data and didn't make a huge deal of it, but I noticed that Harry as well found that in his data too. Okay. So that Ed does better amongst women and better amongst older people. So okay. the older someone, a member is, the more likely they are to support Ed. Those are two characteristics which are uh, party political sort of participation on social media tends to sort of be biased against. So you tend to have younger people, Mm -hmm. and it tends to quite often to be Mm male-dominated. So if you just do, you know, very often when I say do a survey, if I say share the link on social media and you see who responds, it is more male-skewed and it is more younger. So if Ed ends up doing, you know, better than these these, these points of evidence suggest, that will be the easy explanation. That's interesting. On the other hand...
1: When I was doing the um, Lib Dem voice member surveys way back when... uh, and they were sort of 80% mm. uh, men mm. who would respond to those. But nonetheless, when we started disaggregating it to see if there were yeah. any kind of uh, differences, actually on very, very few issues, if any, mm. Indeed. did you notice yeah. the difference between how men and women responded, yeah. even though the samples were yeah. uh, quite unbalanced? Yeah.
0: Um, on the other hand, if <coughs> Jo ends up winning by a massive landslide <laughs> uh, and does it even better than these these bits of data suggest she will, again, the explanation is relatively straightforward, which is that, broadly speaking, the less somebody is a deeply engaged activist, the more likely they are to support Joe. Right. Uh, and again, what's the bias that you tend to get with these sorts of surveys? It's a bias towards the more active people. So there's a, a bundle of biases yeah. there. My hope is uh, that those bu- biases roughly balance out. Yeah. and therefore these numbers will turn out to right. I mean, but the, if they um, are massively wrong, we will edit the last few minutes, simply leave in the explanation and show how good I was at predicting things. my own failure.
1: I've never heard so, so long a pre-excuse. Um, but, uh, but, but I think there is something that is I think genuinely... I was just going to ask about new members, because mm. obviously you know, there's been what 15,000 yeah. or so new members joining the last mm. couple of months, two yeah. three months. Um, so how far it's been possible to kind of factor in they may be less likely to vote mm. or more likely to vote, perhaps, because they join in order to vote. Mm. I don't know how, how which way it works, but how do you factor in the fact that you presumably won't have that many of those uh, signed up yet to your newsletter? They will join, I realise, in due course, yeah. but they may not be... Uh,
0: Absolutely. Well, th- there seems to be a, a reasonable showing okay. of that, that number of people, and I think it does then... Um, it does get into those other patterns that we we're talking about, about how active somebody is, sort of gender, age and so on. Uh, so, uh, so what's hard to do with the sort of level of data and quality of data um, that you have with something like the survey that I did is get into that proper statistical analysis to try and work mm-hmm. out which is actually the driving factor behind voting intention. So I think we quite rapidly get beyond what the data can tell us. And and the reason, actually, though, I have given this very long preamble (laughs) is because, of course, the figures may all turn out to be wrong. I want to get my excuses in early. But also more substantive, in a way, I think it's almost more interesting to talk about what are the factors behind the headline figures that may make them right or wrong. And I think this is a general lesson about political polling overall is that merely focusing on the headline figure can often mean you miss what the story is. Mm -hmm. behind it so one of my so what's the story here what's the story here well so the story here is that pattern amongst amongst gender amongst age and amongst sort of level of engagement Mm -hmm. in the party and so one of my better pre-general election uh, predictions was ahead of the 2017 general election when I said well actually when you scratch under the surface these opinion polls that are giving apparently very different headline figures there's actually a consistency in the story they're telling and Mm -hmm. a lot depends on a couple of factors and indeed as it turned out yeah. That was, yeah, it, it, that, 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 that sort of, you yeah, know, when you look back at that post now, I did sort of predict the sort of 2017 result that, that we got as being plausible, because that was one of the, yeah. you know, when you scratch on the surface, one of the pictures you could see there. Um, so I think, you know, although I am an avid collector of headline voting intention figures, there's a lot to be said for thinking through, well, what are the things that, what are the factors on e- each side that might make these figures biased?
1: Yeah. Well uh, as as you may recall uh, straight after the hustings when we briefly spoke uh, I said my gut reaction was that it on mm. gut prediction was that it'd be 55% 45% mm. to uh, to Joe so um uh, you know I I think therefore you can take my gut instinct as as the most accurate pending only the small detail of the actual result.
0: I will, add to the date, I will add to the table recording the different results, predictions, <laughs> TG for talls, gut, yeah, exactly, as a, exactly an extra data point.
1: Um, I think we probably ought to wrap it up now. I just wanted to... Um, uh, there was one uh, part of it which relates to some of the stuff we've been talking about. You, uh, you asked both candidates at the end, what's the most controversial mm. thing that uh, you think you might propose as leader? And uh, because it picks up on a couple of Mm. themes that we've been discussing. One is that um, both of them uh, chose very internal party. Processes, yes. in which, which so,
0: did sort of make sense given the way I phrased the question. Perhaps, yeah.
1: So, uh, so Ed, it was, for example, he wants to, uh, at the very least, slim down the federal board which mm. governs the party, so from forty-three members to uh, a more um, normal, uh, a more normal and effective kind of approach to uh, having boards of perhaps a dozen to fifteen people. Uh, with Joe, uh, and I think to be fair, Ed also said this. Uh, she focused on making policy making more inclusive. Mm and uh, using technology to reach out to uh, more members. Um, So it was interesting that uh, A, both of them (laughs) alighted on pretty much the same answer Mm. even though in this case they were in separate rooms Mm. when the interviews were uh, undertaken. And B, that it was that sense of, uh, okay, what can we, I suppose to be fair, what do we have the power to do, um, Mm. which is to reform the party. That's something that the leader Mm. um, doesn't do by fiat, but they do have a big say in. And uh, for both of them, it was around trying to make sure that there is a better, more inclusive, or stroke streamlined um, uh, process uh, Mm. by which the party actually governs itself. So there you go; it's it's internal processes, uh, and uh, and both of them saying the same thing. Yeah, I I
0: think what uh, Jo touched on in her answer as well around diversity issues and improving Mm -hmm. the party's at times shockingly poor record on sort of diversity and inclusion. I was I was struck by when Tim Farron ran for party leader and both he and Norman Lamb, uh, I didn't interview them for a podcast at the time, uh, but I did get them both to submit a little video clip of their answers to different questions and one of them was around diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. issues. And Tim's in particular, which is the one I sort of, have subsequently paid more attention to because he then became leader and therefore was interested to see what he was doing married up against what he had said he would do, he had a really detailed set of measures. Mm-hmm. And if you look at his record as leader since, you know, subsequently, I think he did a pretty good job at trying to deliver on that detailed list. I was quite struck how neither Joan nor Ed seemed to have that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I think I may have tweeted a slightly, slightly sarky tweet Um, After one hustings, where one of them was asked about diversity and inclusion... Sorry, they were both asked about diversity and inclusion measures. They both said how important those issues are. However, they had not mentioned it in their opening speech. And they had not mentioned the issue at all, either in their leaflets that were adorning the chairs. And you still think, if it's it's not that important issue... Now, I don't want to read too much into that, because I've, I've, for example... Uh, I wrote a pamphlet a few years ago where I thought, Oh well, will weave diversity issues all the way through rather than having a separate section mm-hmm. of diversity. That didn't work. I think I uh, I got a little bit of flack for that. Um and I think certainly I would not attempt that approach. <laughs> Again, you know, I think sometimes you do have to very yeah. clearly flag something up so that people appreciate it is being taken seriously. So I was I was surprised at yeah. uh, how little in that sense both of them had to say about well this is actually specifically what I want to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it is an issue for the party and it was something Joe mentioned at the Hustings and she mentioned in the interview as mm. well, was, you know, when you look around the mm. rooms of Liberal mm. Democrat um, Party meetings and, and in the case of a Hustings where you would expect to draw on non-activists as well, you know, kind of the armchair yeah. members are more likely mm. to come to a Hustings mm. than perhaps go to a, you know, a local executive meeting. But nonetheless, you look around the room and from where I was sitting, um, which was at the back, mm. so maybe not the perfect view, it was 80% white male. Mm. Uh, and uh, and probably over fifty as well. Um, and it so was it
0: was better, at, for example, the London hustings that I went to, mm-hmm. and yeah, uh, But yeah, if you think about what the population of London is like, a long way short of what would have been a representative sample of London's population. There's clearly a, an awful lot of work still for the party to do. One of the reasons I'm just surprised neither had more detail is I, for example, have recently been rereading uh, the Morrissey report, one of the sort of two key reports, the Morrissey and the Alderdice report that have been. Commissioned by the party in the last few years to look at what the party should do on mm-hmm. various relevant measures, and there are some elements of the Morrissey report that we have not yet implemented. There's a lot of work that has just been coming to fruition to improve our disciplinary processes, which is really important stuff. Uh, and that's a big chunk of what the Morrissey report was about. But if you go back, you know, and I uh, uh, and look at what else uh, she, right, re- you know, recommended that we needed to do, there's 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 material there. You know, there could have been. Whether it's a specific point in either of their leaflets or indeed in their stump speeches or in answer to my question, yeah. uh, yeah. e- even as simple as taking something off the shelf and, and, and saying this is what we need to do wasn't, wasn't there.
1: And I think the, um, the one other point I'd make, which is uh, separate but related, is that uh, obviously the policy making mm. uh, has to be uh, inclusive and, and there are all sorts of reasons beyond that uh, why the party should want to reflect the. Mm society that it seeks to lead, but there is also something in policy making as well about making sure that uh, those policies are fit for government, Mm. and certainly one of the things that I heard from a range of uh, different uh, people in the party and uh, from government advisers who aren't party members was that Liberal Democrat policies sounded good, but actually when you ask people, so how would that actually Mm. get implemented in reality? there wasn't a good answer Mm. and so lots of the policies were you know good sounding and Mm. liberal sounding all you know all the things you might expect Uh, but actually they weren't very tractable Mm. they weren't very actionable and so alongside the making sure it's Mm. inclusive so it reflects the way in which we want liberal society to be there has to be something also about doing the heavy lifting uh, which is going to be difficult for a party that has constrained resources um, but doing the heavy lifting to make sure that if there are policies, they're the sort of things that can be actually delivered in yeah, government. Yeah,
0: definitely, although I, I don't think I would put a but between those two things because it, it seems to me that one of the prime motivations for being better at having a properly diverse party and properly including people is that key liberal sort of principle that motivates that. However, in addition, one of the pragmatic benefits of being better at that is if you you know if we make better use of more people's skills and talents, things like our decision-making processes mm-hmm. and our debates are gonna be better. So I think if yeah, you yeah. want policies that really work in practice, have it, you know, being better at unlocking the talents of people in our party is absolutely vital. And I guess a good example of this would be if we're talking about, say, immigration policy or if we're talking mm-hmm. about other areas that fall within, say, the Home Office's remit, if it is predominantly a room full of uh, people like you and me debating that, we're probably not going to end up making nearly as good decisions uh, with nearly as good an understanding of how these policies play out in practice than if it is a properly diverse group of people. So I think I I, I wouldn't sort of put the two at odds. I think one is in part a means to another. And of course, in a way, this touches on some of the wider uh, academic research there is into how diversity, for example, often helps companies be more profitable Mm -hmm. because diversity results in better decision making and better decision making in that context, therefore, results in more profits. Yeah
1: yeah um i feel like we ought to close this podcast uh, it's sort of on a, a, on a
0: double a, double-sided lp a, length exactly. isn't it exactly
1: um, so uh i, I think guess. i think we
0: should end with maybe saying what has most impressed us about each of the candidates because i think we've perhaps mm-hmm. understandably tended to focus in on yeah. what are the what are the possible criticisms what are the ways you might sort of pull them pull them apart well, you, you or separate them. them rather. You,
1: uh, you spent 45 minutes uh, or so interviewing each of them. What,
0: uh well, obviously their canny understanding of the modern media landscape that made both of them say yes. <laughs> but, so, I, Well, I, I think one thing they have both got right for all the comments I've made about detail uh, is they have both got right that successful political leadership and successful political messaging is about a big, broad-brush picture. Mm-hmm. And you definitely need details to underpin it. Um, and I think when it comes to things like how do you want to change how the party operates, actually whether or not you've got details to substantiate it is really quite important, hence some of what I said before. But in terms of public messaging, say for a general election, they both think, got the point about there isn't huge value in talking of 38 different issues because yeah. we're not going to end up communicating. So the fact that they both talked about a very small coherent set of issues I think is, is, is to both of their credit. It seems to me, and I think looking at mem- you know, comments from sort of a lot of Liberal Democrat members, that almost the the gravity of opinion in the party is that Joe has come over uh, often as the one, perhaps, who is better able to reach out to voters and to cut through, but Ed as being the one who has more substance on policy issues. So almost that Joe might be better at grabbing people's first interest, but Ed better at following up with what the second and third sort of bite of the. Mm-hmm. Uh, bite of a sort of cherry might be in terms of when then people start paying attention to us. And that does make it quite, I think, one of the reasons why a lot of members are undecided, that makes it quite a difficult decision because you sort of, you you want to have both.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because you just stolen my answer, uh, which was that uh, as someone who's uh, pretty undecided between the two of them still, is that uh, on the hustings and from what I've seen, that I think uh, Joe is the more compelling speaker mm. uh, i think you uh, uh, she just has the voice uh, and the way of expressing herself that uh, resonates at least to me uh, at the same time i was really impressed by uh, eds um, thoughtful uh, answers um, and I, you know the the answers he gave on fracking and nuclear mm. actually you know i genuinely learned something mm. i think you're right to suggest that those are quite nuanced messages to get across uh, in public mm. and i suppose he you know he would say that he would find ways of making sure that they were more marketable yeah. uh, when it came to uh, actually communicating mm. them uh, outside Indeed. of I'd almost a say if, podcast.
0: If anyone is still undecided and wants to make up their mind, in a way, listening I think so. Listening yeah, yeah. to those two answers from Ed, I think, neatly captures both the reasons some people have for voting for him and also the reasons some people have some doubts for yeah. voting for him. So actually, if you're undecided between Joe and Ed, those particular answers from Ed help capture a large part of that and so, decision. So on...
1: Uh, on uh, social media uh, said that, I can't remember who it was now, said that it reminded them a bit of the Chris Hewn-Nick Clegg contest in that sense, that Nick Clegg was the personable communicator, yeah. and that was how he put himself across. Chris Yoon had, you know, exuded that kind of intellectual uh, confidence, yeah. um, but was perhaps less appealing, less likeable, if I can be unfair for a second, as a... a as a well, you've a, a PR already, campaign. so you know. Feel free to diss some <laughs> live them Lib as well. I voted for Chris. I voted for Chris in the end, um, so I feel able to say it. Um, but you know, it's that kind of contest between who's the uh, the best communicator and who has the kind of policy heft. Yeah. And it feels like there's that choice this time. And it was interesting. I noticed in your survey, not poll, your survey, not poll, that uh, being a good communicator was the number one characteristic that was picked out. I mean, lots of other characteristics yeah. were identified, but that was the one that came top as being the one that party members mm. were most looking yeah. for in a new leader, which is perhaps not surprising, given that the party itself, through conference, etc., makes policy, and therefore it's not necessarily the leader, though they have a big part to play, who uh, determines yeah. policy. But they do, where they do have responsibility, uh, is in putting those cross... Uh, in a vivid, uh, resonating way to the public during general election campaign.
0: And that particular finding of the survey is, I think, one of the robuster ones because it matches what uh, Professor Tim Bale and colleagues have found when they have uh, previously, in 2015, after the 2015 uh, general election, um, did a proper opinion poll survey of Liberal Democrat members. And it asked the same question with the same answers uh, then, which is why I mirrored it in the survey now and and the same characteristics came out. Intre- and the thing that surprised me, I think I wouldn't have expected if you'd asked me in advance and pushed me to predict, is that the ability to negotiate and strike deals mm-hmm. came out very lowly in 2015 and again came out very lowly this time, which yeah. I was, I think I would have predicted it would be considered much more important because if we're in a world of cross-party arrangements, cross-party working on Brexit, possible hung parliaments... Actually, our ability to negotiate feels like it should be more important. And I I, I, I intend to... But perhaps it's
1: seen as more of a shared responsibility than one that's sits only uh, a leader.
0: One thing I'm going to go back to is have a look again through the answers to some of the open-ended questions to see whether that may help Mm. tease out an answer to that as to why so few members didn't didn't think that that was one of the most important characteristics. But of course, another way party members can let us know why they rated that characteristic so lowly Mm -hmm is to let us know via social media because Nevermind The Bar Charts has a Twitter account at Bar Chart Podcast. We have a Facebook page called Nevermind The Bar Charts Podcast. So please do leave comments, send us tweets, be very interested, especially... Mm. Not just on that niche question, but on a listeners' views overall, um, and of because course, your voting
1: papers should be with you now. And the timetable—we should just say when. Uh, but people votes are going to be listening to
0: this podcast for years to come. <laughs> we don't want to confuse them on that basis. So, when, when does voting close? Uh, voting closes later this month.
1: Later this month. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I sadly don't have the exact date in front of me and I know there was a little bit of a debate as to exactly what the date would be so I'm going to refrain because it was refrain. to be announced on the same, same day as the as Tory the- leader <laughs> so, so, so the closing date got changed at the last moment so on that note of complete failure to properly inform the or- <laughs> our audience about what's what I think we better bring this podcast <laughs> to an end